welcome to another episode of Fandom Made Me, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring activists, leaders, and writers talking about fandom and the pop culture that shaped them. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today we'll be discussing the magic of being a Disney fan and supporting labor rights at Disney with a woman who takes Disney very personally, as she should because her name is right there on the tin. Abigail E. Disney is a filmmaker, philanthropist, activist, and the Emmy-winning director of The Armor of Light. As president and CEO of the documentary production company Fork Films, she produced the groundbreaking Pray the Devil Back to Hell and co-created the subsequent PBS series Women, War, and Peace. Abigail is also the chair and co-founder of Level Forward, a storytelling company focused on systemic change through creative excellence. The companies and stories that have most meaning for Abigail are the ones which foster human understanding. She has executive produced and supported over 100 projects through Fork Films funding program and created the nonprofit Pieces Loud, which uses storytelling to advance social movements, focusing on women's rights and gender justice. In this special conversation, Abby and I talk about what it was like to grow up at Disney. Walt Disney was her great uncle and Roy Disney was her grandfather. She talks about what Disney has meant to her throughout her life and how the labor movement at Disney has changed her understanding of the company. She talks about her film about this experience, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. And we discuss the ongoing Fandom Forward campaign that we're working on together. Right now, we're running a petition on Action Network, Be a Hero, Change the Rules to Support Disney Workers. So you can go ahead and follow the link in the show notes and show your support for Disney workers in a letter to Disney shareholders. As a reminder, this podcast is produced by Fandom Forward in order to educate the world about fan activism. So if you would like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash fandomforward or fandomforward.org slash donate. Now, on to the show. Abigail Disney, hello and welcome to Fandom Made Me. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. It is so exciting to finally have this conversation. This has been, I think, a couple of months in the works and behind all of the scheduling has been a bigger project that we're working on together. As of this recording, we just launched the Be a Hero campaign with Fandom Forward, which is based off of a film you just made in the last couple of years called The Mm -hmm. American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. Can you tell us about the campaign and, and the film? Sure, sure, sure. Here, let's start with the film. I went to Disneyland a lot as a kid, as many people have and do. But uh, I'm a weird and unusual person (laughs) because I used to go with my grandfather who co-founded the Walt Disney Company with his brother. He was Roy Disney. And, you know, everybody loves their grandpa, but my grandpa really was actually awesome. (laughs) Like everybody (laughs) thinks they're awesome, but mine really was. It's like your grandpa actually (laughs) sucks. My grandpa will kick your grandpa's butt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He was. He was just a sweet, wonderful, lovely man. And and when we would come in through the employee entrance and kind of this little side door on, on Main Street, he would get sort of mauled 
just surrounded by employees in the back lot and they loved him and you know they called him Roy he hated when people called him Mr. Disney and and he knew everybody's name and he knew you know he'd ask about their kids and whatever it was a like a little lesson for me and you know it took takes years to decode the lessons you learn when you're really young but what it realized as I got older was that he understood his job as this you know a very high-ranking founder of the company and the COO and CEO as a kind of person who was creating livelihoods for those people that he was talking to as he went in. And he never mistook his importance and their importance. And he used to say to me, don't you dare backtalk or sass these people. You need to respect them. They are the most important people here. So, so that's kind of how I was raised. And flash forward 50 years to, um, you know, I'm sitting in my house in New York City and I get a Facebook message, which I normally don't read. For some reason, I looked at his Facebook message and he was saying, you know, we've been having a hard time dealing with the company, with our union. Um, And he was a janitor. He worked the night shift. And, uh, you know, those people are critical. The people who clean up the gum off the sidewalks and make sure the bathroom practically sparkles and you could eat off the the street, you know, because it's so clean. That's really important stuff. And they take pride in what they do. And what he was describing to me in terms of the way the company was was acting around, you know, a not unreasonable desire for a raise on the part of the janitorial staff just sounded crazy to me. And it didn't jibe with how I understood the company to be run. And so I flew out to Anaheim and I met with them. And I came away from that meeting, you know, just outraged really and it was so clear that you know what Disney was doing was bad but not unusual and that they were doing things that they teach you all the time in business school to do around saving costs and um, and looking at human beings and seeing costs and not people so I went home and thought how can I be of help in this I can't even you know imagine how you help someone in this you know, I got nothing. Um, and then I thought, well, I have Bob's email, Bob Iger, the Bob CEO. Bob Iger, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, he thinks I'm a nut. And, you know, he doesn't have any respect for me. And, and I'm just a gadfly, you know. I don't have any power. But I decided I'd write him an email and say, and appeal to his better nature. And I did. And I got a really very unsatisfactory response. And that kind of made me even more frustrated and angry. And that's when it kicked in that, of course, I'm a filmmaker. That's what I do. There's something more I can do about this, even if I can't help the Disney workers or if I can. You know, there's a big point to be made here about what's happened to America and its workers. So flash forward, (laughs) a film comes (laughs) out and 2020 at Sundance. And we had a great first year and lots of screenings especially in um, Orange County for workers and so forth some of the workers have gotten raises and I'm really proud of that because I definitely take some credit for that but there's so much more to be done because you know it's really not just about raises this really goes back to the question of how do you as a manager and as a CEO look upon the people that work for you do they just show up and materialize at nine in the morning and then when they leave at five do they stop existing as human beings or are they human beings and don't you want them to have lives if it were your daughter or your sister or whatever wouldn't you want them to have a life worth living outside of the nine to five you spend together so it really does involve kind of whole character transplant or a, a personality transplant that that has to take place at every company in America practically but there are companies that do it 
There yeah. are companies that do this all the time. Patagonia is one. Costco. There, I can name 50 companies that have made a conscious decision to become socially responsible businesses. And there's a legal designation that you can get that relieves you of the obligation or the risk of being sued if you're not only pursuing shareholders' interests. And that may seem like a small, petty thing. But when you decide to only care about shareholders, there are a thousand things that kind of waterfall out of that decision. And they are all traceable to this condition of workers in most American companies. And that was where Fandom Forward came in. Before we get into what Fandom Forward is doing, I do want to take a step back and and talk about that perspective of what a CEO's responsibility is, Mm -hmm. both to employees, to shareholders, and to the public generally. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm someone who is very interested in business. I read a lot of business books. I've read Bob Iger's memoir. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't care about what these people have to say. I do think that there's a lot I can learn as someone who's interested in media Mm -hmm. management. But I also think, you know, call me old fashioned, but I'm with Roy Disney in that Mm -hmm. you, you said in the film that the idea that an executive would make hundreds or even thousands times more then the average Disney employee would mm-hmm. would be unthinkable to your grandfather. Yeah. So where where did we start to see that shift yeah. in in American business culture? Yeah, because you know it's funny because it wasn't so much laws shifting; it was really a culture that shifted. And so you know how in the 1920s something would have been unacceptable that now today seems fine. That's what happened with business, is certain things that were out of bounds became inbounds without any kind of formal moment at which it happened. But my grandfather died in 1971, which happens to be the same year that Milton Friedman, this famous economist from Chicago, who is kind of the most visible face of this new way of thinking about business, and other people started being really visible and active. And it was a a group of economists, and they started in Europe. It was the birth of the greed is good movement. In American corporate culture. And and to, to put the most charitable interpretation on that sentence, greed is good, if you want to give them all the credit in the world, what they mean is that if I run my business really, really, really well, and I make a lot of money, everyone's going to benefit. Everybody at that company is going to benefit because I, the shareholders are going to make money and the employees are going to have a job and the product will be created and the customers will be happy. That is kind of the most generous interpretation of greed is good. And what it was at the root of, of greed is good was this idea that shareholders own the company. They own little symbolic bits and pieces of the company and all put together. That's, that's the company. It otherwise kind of doesn't exist. And therefore, as owners, they should benefit first and the most by the growth in the value of the company and they should decide who runs the company and they should have a say in what's happening and it on the surface looks and sounds very rational but the thing is that our capitalist system grew up around the simultaneous with industrial capitalism which you know was the industrial revolution when there were factories and and you know this explosion of productivity and and this modern version of capitalism and also almost totally coterminous with chattel slavery in this country that might seem to have nothing to do with it except for the fact that alongside our industrial capital system there was also this kind of training for you in the idea that It was an unfortunate truth that somebody always had to suffer. 
that somebody would always lose in this system, that somebody would always not be okay. And that was the, to give it the most charitable interpretation, an unfortunate side effect of a healthy functioning capitalist system. And I call BS on that. And I know that it's BS because I know that there are, there are many, many, many companies through the years who have not functioned that way. When we decided to only reward owners of capital for the growth and the value of a company, we're saying that the fruits of the labor of the people who are making that growth happen don't also belong to those laborers. So what shifted was this kind of three-legged stool that used to exist, government, labor, and business. One leg just got absolutely decimated, and then the leg that was corporate just became so overpowering that government even really doesn't have the power anymore to push back. And now the whole system is toppling over because you're seeing yeah. you know, so much income inequality Disney yeah. workers and workers around the country, not even just at Disney, but at many companies are on food stamps, even yeah. though they're working full time, yeah. you know, one, two, three full time jobs. They're working 60, 70 hours a week to make ends meet and they can't. Um, yeah. You see customer service has really gone oh, yeah. down the drain yeah. because yeah. I think that employee satisfaction, you know, there is no impetus yeah. for, well, for people to, to be happy at work because they're yeah. not able to make well you know and consider the irony yeah. that a lot of the people who are pushing this way of understanding the system are very critical of government support and government programs and things like food stamps and public schools and these mm -hmm. are the people who are pushing back on all that kind of stuff and yet they're paying people such that they can't afford food and they have to rely on the government they can't afford housing so they have to rely on the government and so actually the taxpayers are picking up the check for the ways in which these companies are failing, even as these corporate leaders are trying to undermine even those small bits of safety net that we have left. Yeah, and I, I look, I support a universal basic income. I support a strong social safety net. But I think that it's really hypocritical that these companies, they, they lobby for less government interference, are the yeah. same companies that are sending their employees to food banks and, and yeah. you know, to get food yeah. stamps. So, but, so a bunch but, of really yeah. radical things happened starting in the 1980s when, when Ronald Reagan was elected. He shifted the tax code radically. My grandfather paid over his lifetime, sometimes in the 50s, sometimes in the 70s, sometimes in the 80% is marginal tax rate. So he would make, you know, $100 and 80 would go to the government in taxes. And he still became a very wealthy man under that system. So Ronald Reagan came in and said, no, no, no. And he brought the marginal tax rate down wildly. And he even made the capital gains tax. That like, it's really important to understand how radical that was. He changed our media environment by ending the fairness doctrine. He took every regulation apart that he possibly could. He disemboweled the EPA. He disemboweled the labor NLRB and the other labor um, OSHA and things like that, the, the Department of Health, things like that. All the protections disappeared. And then into that void stepped a class of managers who'd been taught in business school that they were actually doing a social good by being greedy. And so you put those two things together and what, what inevitably happened was that wealthy people got very, 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 very wealthy and powerful, and workers had it worse and worse and worse steadily over time. So entertainment is a really interesting industry for all of this because, I mean, I guess other industries have consumers, right? But 
-hmm. think that consumers in entertainment are among the most interesting because they're essentially yeah. fans. Yeah. Um, fandom is this really powerful tool for social yes. change. That's the entire thesis of mm -hmm. what Fandom Forward is, what this podcast is. And you have partnered with Fandom Forward on this campaign, Be a Hero, yeah. um, which is centered on your film supporting labor rights at Disney. From your unique perspective as an heir to, to Disney mm. and, and as a Disney family member, why do you think fan activists are powerful in organizing mm. Disney workers? Disney is not just any company. You know, and the way people go to work for it, they identify themselves as people who should work at Disney because Disney is a reflection of their values and they feel this passionate attachment to the company and this incredible pride in working there because it's special. You know, consumption in entertainment isn't consuming an object or a food or something like that. What you're consuming is ideas. Like when you go to a film, all you're seeing is colors and lights arranged in a way that really moves you. It evokes passion and feeling and incredible loyalty. So fans are, I think, the most interesting potential advocates. They're there because they've been moved because something has really moved them deeply and attached inside of their hearts in a way that's really deep. I think that the main thing that went out of American business is precisely that. It became like, if I can't count it, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. So I can't count employee satisfaction. I can't tell you what the value is of keeping somebody here at the company for a long time. I can't tell you whether or not the housekeeper making the bed appropriately is going to deliver any value to my bottom line. So I'm not going to pay attention to that. It used to be that Disney was a company where people really cared about all of those things because they felt a passionate attachment to where they were. So fans are living embodiments of the best about what the Disney company does and is. And if they can kind of tap into all that passion and love, because love is really the root of it, maybe they can appeal back into the company and reawaken some of that at the company. It sounds like a crazy thing to say, except that I know from my life experience that very few people have been reduced to automatons, <laughs> no matter how deeply a material system they've found themselves captured by. Inside of every corporate executive, there's somebody who remembers his first time at Disneyland and his first movie and the first time he saw Star Wars. They all still exist inside those people. It's one thing, as I have been, to stand outside and shake your fist and shame people. But, but what's more meaningful is, is to stand with your arms outstretched and with deep passion and love in your heart and say, I see you and I know you understand me. And I know what we all have seen and want to see in this company. So we are inviting you to remember who you are. We are inviting you back into all that passion and love that made you tick that make us tick. Like there's a, a very important, not monetary, relationship between fans and the companies that create what fans love. And, and if you can liven up that attachment, you know, and make it a two-way communication rather than one, I think that the possibilities are profound. Yeah, actually, our next guest after this episode is going to be Henry Jenkins, a professor mm -hmm. at the University of Southern California, basically the father of fan studies. And he has said wow. pretty much exactly this on his podcast, I think, or another podcast, just that I think a lot of major media conglomerates mm -hmm. don't really understand fandom. They, they spend 
you know, yeah. millions yeah. of dollars, maybe in the billions um, on focus groups and, and market yeah. research, trying to understand the consumer mindset. But I think that a lot of the magic is just, it's not that it's intangible, it's just that it kind of mm -hmm. goes beyond what you would learn in business school. You and, know, you know you if you have an MBA, you can't, yeah. you can't just, you know, a lot of this is like, it goes back to the evolution of storytelling. And I've written about this before. I think that storytelling is something that has been passed on from generation to generation. It's been remixed and reinterpreted in so many ways. And you see that with the Bible, you know, that's not yeah. the sexiest example, but it is yeah. something where the Bible was um, passed through oral tradition for, I think, yeah. 200 years before it was actually written yeah. down. And you see that with fairy tales as well. There's a mm -hmm. Cinderella in basically every culture and there's a fairy tale code. Mm -hmm. So now all of the modern mythos, I call it, the stories that we love, Star Wars, Marvel, Harry Potter, all of these stories are are the same as they always were, but because mm -hmm. they're owned by these companies, there are so mm -hmm. many limitations on what you can do with them. But I think people just do these things anyway. They remix, they yeah. interpret, they cosplay, they create. You know, there's a there's a, a terrible thing that started happening as Disney changed and started to move in a very Wall Street direction because there's a significant amount of snobbery about fandom that occurs in all companies, whether they create media or not. And, you know, you get this professional class that comes in. They could be working at Levi's. They could be working in a million different companies. Right now they're at Disney, so maybe tomorrow it'll be the gap, right? And and they didn't come into the company because they had they share that passion and that magic and that connection. And the thing is, business school does not tell you how to measure a vibe. And and that is what's happening with fans, is they are connecting on a vibe level. And if you don't understand who the fans are, if you don't really like the fans, if you see yourself as kind of cooler than the fans, then you really have a problem. And much of what Disney has been walking into that has been not smart over the last few years, the Star Wars Hotel and, and other things like that, the, the really big train wrecks, have really been just smacked of exactly that, that that like you actually did not learn at Harvard Business School about what a fan actually is. And you can't function in this business unless you actually like your fans. And so yeah. partly what needs to happen at that company and, and at every entertainment company is for the managerial class to get out of the way of the creatives who need their all this amplitude of, of spirit and value to really do what creatives do and take all the risk and do all the messy things because that's where vibes come from. And so, you know, Disney's, you know, has struggled. And, you know, we, we were talking about this the other night on the call, right? This critical fandom, which is this really important way that you have to kind of look at the thing you really, really love in a really honest way and be able to contain Within your love, also a real uh, recognition of what's not working. So that you could hold those both in your head at the same time. A thing can be less than perfect and still wonderful and you love it. And Disney's been stumbling quite a lot lately in terms of what they're delivering. Yeah, our wonderful friends at Black Nerds Create have really been pioneers of critical fandom. And I know many of, of the Black Nerds Create members are part of Fandom Forward as well. Mm -hmm. And they were part of that launch call on, on Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, what were the actions that you were hoping fans would take during this campaign? Well, what I'm really looking forward to, you know, I come from a very different generation than you all do. And so <laughs> a lot of stuff has kind of happened 
you know, while I wasn't looking. And fans are creators. I mean, I, I don't see much of a distinction between creators and fans anymore. There's a way in which they engage with material and build on it and extrapolate from it. It's a new way of understanding the act of love in terms of consuming entertainment. I am sitting back now in the hopes of watching the creativity mushroom the way it does when, when people are enthused and talking to each other. I want to see the fans begin to say, how do we invite this company back into relationship with its fans, back into relationship with its materials? And how do we invite this company to live the values that, that we all share around treating humans with equal dignity, around not destroying the environment, around people of color being valued in all their dignity and, and visible in all their dignity? There are so many things the company does right and does well. I'm really proud of them in so many ways. But it needs the fans to help it stay the course and to expand its idea of how a, a business can work in this environment because it does not have to be this way. You know, I tweeted something out last week because Bob Iger gave an interview and uh, at Aspen and he said, you know, that he was disturbed by the writer's strike because he felt that they were being unrealistic. And, you know, he got really piled on on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So it's yeah. almost as if it's a blessing and a curse because you hope that these things won't happen. Yeah. And, and his comments were pretty repulsive. But I, I think that Bob Iger's comments do provide an opening for us yes. to talk about how exactly. this campaign exactly. with the Disney workers at right. the parks kind of dovetails with the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes. Oh, for sure. Um, they're, how, they're how do they connect? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Because because what what they're you know streaming's really upset the Apple Card. It's a more simple way to put product out. But that's a problem because it used to be, you know, you'd make your TV series, it would go into syndication, it would sell into international markets, revenues would pop up at every stop on that freight train, right? And then, and then there was an opportunity to divide the revenues among the people who created the thing. And so writers were getting streams of revenue that lasted for years, and so were actors. Um, and so was everybody on the chain who was above the line, which is TV speak and entertainment speak for above a certain level. And the makeup artists weren't benefiting and the set decorators weren't benefiting. But that's another conversation that should happen, but not right at this minute. As we've moved into this world of there's only one stop for your product, it's streaming. And so there's only one transaction we're going to have, and we're going to have all your rights in perpetuity for every market on earth. There's only one transaction. And of course, it's the nature of business these days to put the most downward pressure as, as they can put on what it is that they pay to get that product and then try to squeeze as much as they can out of it. So they don't want to change that business model, right? That business model that they're functioning on is the same business model that you function on if you make chairs. You know, I make a chair for... $25. And from that $25, $20 goes to my laborers. And I sell it for $50. So my profit is $25. But I really would like to make more than $25. So I'm going to decrease my labor costs to $18. And that way I get another $2 out of every chair. That's what's been happening at companies around the world for the last 50 years. That's what's going to happen if streaming is the only stop and if we don't change the way these deals are structured. So when revenue comes into a company, you know, it comes in as a result of all the work of all these people, 
And what happens is the first stop on the revenue freight train is, look, I paid my taxes and all these things I'm obligated to do. And then I think about like how much money now goes to shareholders. How much money do I give them? So Disney over the years has paid billions of dollars of profits to shareholders, which is a transfer of significant amounts of money to the owners of the company. But what if we looked at the revenues differently? What if we said to ourselves, they don't all necessarily belong to owners. They also belong to makers. And if we stopped at the point at which the revenue comes in, we pay out everything that must be paid out, interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, all that stuff. And then we stopped and we said, how do we ensure everybody's dignity is, is held up here? That is an unnegotiable term. Like, we don't get to be in this business unless everybody's dignity is honored. And so maybe 10% of these revenues gets divided up among workers. And then the rest of the revenues can get divided up among the other things, the luxuries, the shareholders, and the management. But right now, they, they don't even know how to imagine their way out of this little tiny narrow sliver of thinking that they're that they're in right now as far as they're concerned all they've ever heard of all they've ever known every ceo in this country has been raised and trained on the idea that every freaking penny that comes in as a result of your company's activities goes to the owners and the managers we, we can't do that anymore it's not sustainable so the problem the workers at disney the janitors have is the same problem that the writers and the and the actors are having which is that the business model is broken and it has to be changed i do wonder if with the sag and wga strikes and the rise of of labor movements in you know the early 2020s i wonder if this is a bit of a turning point particularly because of social media and the nature of digital organizing. I mean, mm -hmm. have you ever seen this much pushback on Disney or other companies? I mean, I'm seeing it like the Bob Iger comments and, you know, Sean Gunn, who was Kirk on Gilmore Girls, and I'm part of the Gilmore Girls fandom yeah. and know a lot of the actors pretty well. A lot of the fans have reacted and shared mm -hmm. what Sean Gunn said in response to Bob Iger about, you know, how he doesn't get any residuals basically from Gilmore yeah. Girls and, and it's one of the most popular shows on Netflix. So so I've seen, you know, I've personally seen fans mobilize based on their favorite actors making these comments. Do you think that this is a turning point? I, I hope it's a turning point. I mean, I've been hoping for turning points for a really long time. But I do think that the movement toward this idea that we want people to get super wealthy, we admire the super wealthy, we think that they're wealthy because they're super brilliant and therefore deserve everything they have. I think that the, the cultural moment at which that was a belief system, that wave has broken. And so we'll see what replaces it. But I, I actually think that Bob retired, you know, in 2020, and it was one kind of world he retired from. It was a world in which magazine covers were almost exclusively about people like him. You know, these admiring profiles about CEOs who made all this money and look at how amazing and how self-made and how independent and, and how wealthy they are. That moment just left us during the pandemic and during the social reckoning that occurred also simultaneous with the pandemic. It's almost like he's like Sleeping Beauty and he woke up and came back in, but it's a different world and nobody told him. So I think a lot of what he said, he might've said before he retired in 2020, and it would have been fine. We're in a different world now. 
and people are much more sensitive to that kind of thing. I mean, I've been shouting about his compensation for a really long time and nobody really cared. So you can't imagine how gratifying it is to have people step in and say, wait, wait a minute, how much are you making? I think it's a different moment and I hope it can be sustained. Well, I think the fact that people know his name and know who he is and, and the fact that they're paying attention to who is at the top and who is yeah. leading these companies and saying these things could actually make make a pretty big difference. Let's get into something a little bit more fun. So we've talked mm. about the serious stuff. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about so So I know that this episode was really a special episode to focus on Be a Hero and your film. Mm. But the show is fandom made me. So I want to talk about your fandoms. Um, Having grown up Disney at Disney, were you part of any of the Disney fandoms? Well, you know, of course, I grew up in a very different time. So we didn't have TikTok and we didn't have, you know, any of these kind of really beautiful social organizing kinds of things. So if you were a fan, you were a fan kind of in your room. But but I have to say that I have had a, um, a deep love of certain of the Disney films. And I kind of rediscovered that love as my kids got to a certain age and I started sharing my favorite films with them. And um, for me, it's Pinocchio, it's Dumbo. I mean, those are two, two of the best films ever made as far as I'm concerned. And, and Fantasia, which is just beautiful. It's really beautiful. And when I started bringing my children to Disney World when they were little and watched them enjoy the things I enjoyed in the way that I enjoyed them, that's like a powerful thing. And so just Mr. Toad is the most ridiculous and wonderful, magnificent thing, you know, that that it's silly and, it, and it's great. And there are my children. Just, I have no idea why they're looking at this or who it's about, but they are just totally in love with it and and small world also just a thing you know my mother had alzheimer's and it was very hard to watch her kind of disappear in, into herself but um she she got more open and more joyous the deeper she got into her alzheimer's it was an interesting thing that happened and somebody sent me a photograph of her he had taken her to disneyland and she really didn't couldn't talk much couldn't do much but it was a picture of her face on small world and it was the most rapturous, joyful, delighted face that you can possibly imagine. And it was it's the picture that I will always have in my mind of my mother forever, forever, because it's magic. There's no other word for what that company can do. And um, Small World was always like the most important one for me. Yeah, my parents, my mom and stepdad took me to Disneyland when I was seven years old. That was the one time I went as a child and I still remember it. I loved it. Loved the teacups. I will also say at the launch on Tuesday, you brought up this really powerful point about Pocahontas when it Mm, came out and how you weren't sure that Disney was going to be able to handle that story with cultural sensitivity and even today there's still a lot of commentary about about how flawed it is but you did say just the the song yeah you think you own whatever land you land on the earth is just a dead thing you could claim but i know every rock and tree and fountain has a life has a spirit has a name i mean when i sat in a dark movie theater with my daughters next to me and and they and that was just that was the song was the trailer and i sat through that trailer and i was weeping because yes for all the flaws of the film and i knew there'd be flaws and you know there was no way to do that as disney without there being a lot of problems but the message coming through loud and clear 
in that song was something that I needed to hear, my children needed to hear, everyone on earth needed to hear. And it was just, it was beautiful and well done and beautifully animated. And like, it was everything Disney has in its capacity to do and be in the world. It has, it has this ability to alter the way people understand what they're doing here on this planet and in a positive direction it made me so proud there are moments when I'm so proud can I tell you one other proud thing yeah so I was in Yad Vashem which is the Holocaust Museum in uh, Jerusalem and yes this is a weird place to start a, a, <laughs> an uplifting story and it's gonna be uplifting it's a tough museum right it's a very tough mm-hmm. museum and I was there with a woman who was taking me and giving me a tour around it and at the very beginning of the tour she said oh there's something about your great uncle here toward the end you'll see and I was like what is here (laughs) I was really scared I had no idea what it could possibly be so you know and as you go further (laughs) into that museum it sort of tracks time and so you get deeper into the holocaust and it it's designed to go deeper and deeper into this mountain and darker and narrower it's really quite a you know and I was just getting more and more anxious and then we get to this room where you've stepped out actually into a little bit of a more light space and there's a glass case and there's a comic book in it and it's about Mickey Mouse and it was created by uh, one of the prisoners at the Gers camp who had not escaped alive and none of his family had made it out alive but the narrative in the comic book which he had drawn by hand and it was magnificent it was so well done was about Mickey at the Gers camp and he was outsmarting the Nazis and he was figuring out how to make fun of them and he was playing practical jokes on them and on the last page he flies out of the camp to freedom and I'm going to cry just talking about it now because um Mickey managed to be something so much more than celluloid. He came out of that context and meant something very profound, so profound that a man under these dire circumstances would reach out to him to help him understand, you know, the point of being alive and what freedom looks like and how transcendence comes. (laughs) That's no small thing. You know, if, if with one thing in your life you could manage to offer that to somebody in that level of pain and suffering just once in your life, what an extraordinary thing. And that's what Walt and my grandfather and all those beautiful creators of the company succeeded in doing. And they continue to succeed in doing that over and over and over again. So that Mickey kind of transformed me into like a real fan, somebody really passionate. See, remember when I said that this is what fans do? Mm. They remix and they reinterpret mm. and they recreate. He was the first That's, fan creator. <laughs> he was a fan creator. It's yeah. a crazy circumstance. Yeah. It is not a circumstance you want to find yourself in. But yes, this man created Mickey yeah. Mouse fan fiction and it sustained him through you could, this horrible atrocity. Yeah. You can Google Mickey Edgar's camp, G-U-R-S. To find him it's it's really it's quite remarkable i'll leave yeah. a link in the notes i do want to i want to yeah. look at this coming back to the management and you know going to business school this is not something that you learn in business school no exactly. and this is something they would slap you with a cease and desist My, for yes. creating something like that because it's copyright infringement and completely yeah. misses the point i don't mean to preach to the choir but this mm-hmm. is this is what I keep telling exactly. people. You know, that is what storytelling is. And, and that, that is worth so much more yeah. than, than anything else about, about well, this. I've traveled, my filmmaking has taken me 
to some crazy places around the world, Congo, Sudan, you know, Sri Lanka. I mean, war-torn countries, countries recently out of war. And what after that experience of seeing Mickey at Gers, I started noticing Mickey in all kinds of places. And I started collecting photographs of him. The, these Mickeys are hand-drawn by fans. And um, they are in the most remarkable places. Like, I've seen him in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I've seen him in Peru. I've seen him in Sri Lanka. I've seen him in Bosnia right after the Civil War there. And I was coming into Khartoum, which is in Sudan. It's a pretty intense, difficult situation. My friend picked me up, and I said to her, I have a policy. If we see Mickey Mouse, we're stopping the car. I have to take a picture of him. And she said to me, Abby, you are lucky not to be wearing a burqa. We're not going to see Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I said, well, that's funny. You should say that, Hibak, because there she is. There he is right behind your head. And just as she was saying that to me, there was a Mickey Mouse. He's on the side of schools and barbershops and shopping malls. And he's everywhere. And so we saw Mickey three times from the airport to the hotel we were going to. And I kind of explained to my friend Hibak why I thought Mickey was important in a place like Khartoum. Because people take time out of their incredibly stressed lives and material that's expensive to them to, to draw this character. So why? why? What does that mean? It's because it's like this unmitigated symbol of joy and connectedness and love for its own sake. They do it generally for the children to give them a, something positive to live for. And so you see it in some of the most desperate places in the world. And I explained all this to Hibak, and I told her about Mickey Edgars, and she looked at me and she said in her, in her Somali accent, you know, Abby, I think Mickey is a freedom fighter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, ever since then, I thought, yeah, these are fan creators. They are. You just had never heard of them. They don't have access to the internet. They're living incredibly hard, stressed lives. I've been wanting to publish a book with all my photos because you'd just be so amazed at what you can find. You once told me that a very significant fandom for you outside mm -hmm. of Disney when you were growing up was <laughs> da 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 Wonder Woman! <laughs> Linda Carter era Wonder Woman in, I believe, 1975 to 1978. I don't know. I should know yeah. that. Yeah, so late 70s, first live action Wonder Woman officially. Yeah. I believe there was a Kathy Lee Crosby right, TV right. movie that didn't really take off. But what did you learn from Wonder Woman? Like, tell me oh, about the experience of, of get. how did you get into this show and become a fan? I, I was a, um, a huge tomboy, huge tomboy. I was born in 1960 and to a pretty conservative family. So, you know, I played on the boys soccer team and, you know, got threatened with expulsion by my principal because, you know, she didn't want girls playing on boys teams and that kind of thing. So I was 15 in 1975 when Wonder Woman came on. Like, which is like maximum awkward, you know, and, and when you're a tomboy and your parents are like, what are you doing? You know, you want to find a narrative of how, how you're going to be in the world and what kind of life you're going to have. And there were no narratives of women who were strong and powerful and amazing. And the narratives of people who were strong and powerful and amazing were all, all about men and they were all violent. Um, and like that didn't appeal to me either. And the, here comes Wonder Woman and she's gorgeous, you know, and I like it shouldn't matter, but it did. Because I've sort of been led to think that like, oh, well then I was ruling myself out as somebody who could be attractive to people. And, and she was effortlessly dispatching people and she used her lasso of truth to get the truth out of people which seemed like the most amazing superpower you could have and she never killed anyone and she never hit anyone and yet she was the master of her destiny and people admired her and she was always gracious 
and always generous and funny and beautiful. So I don't know if computer could have spit out somebody I needed more at that point <laughs> in my life than Linda Carter. You know how Harry Potter gets that letter at the very beginning? And finally, when he finally gets it, after all the trouble of you getting to him, it says, you're not a muggle. That was my you're not a muggle moment. I mean, Amazing. that's what Linda Carter was for me. I think Bob Iger would like it if a computer could spit out exactly the show that you would like to see. But that's not going to happen because yeah. Hollywood is ultimately made up of human beings who yeah. are creative and they bring magic in our, into our lives. I'm bringing it all the way back around. Yeah, you are. Um, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> nice segue. How do the lessons you learned about being a woman, being empowered, you know, everything you learned from Wonder Woman, how does that apply to your life and your career? as a mm. filmmaker and an activist. You know, one of the things about being a filmmaker is you have to make something that doesn't already exist and you have to venture into the unknown without a map. And the film I made before this one is called The Armor of Light. I reached out to a person who was politically as far from me as was humanly possible. Um, and it was really hard for me to do because I care very much about my political positions, but he was a right-wing Christian evangelical pro-life activist who was one of the founders of Operation Rescue. And I went to him and I said, just like as two human beings, can we just like set our armor aside and say, I don't understand if every life is sacred, why the gun policy you support is what you support. So in, in all good faith, can we just engage on this? And he was lovely and wanted to talk about it. And we ended up making this film together, just basically watching him explore this question among people of his world. And so that's, that's what that whole film is. And the whole time we were making it, I kept waking up in the middle of the night suddenly saying, but I don't know what to compare this film to. I don't know how to describe this. You know, it's weird. I've never seen it before. And then I kept having to come back to, well, but isn't that the point of being an artist? <laughs> isn't that the whole point to make something nobody made before? And courage is not an automatic thing. It's a muscle you have to flex. I think that those those years when I was young, in the handful of inspirations I had, like Billie Jean King, like Linda Carter, like Maude on television and things mm -hmm. like that, those were the women who showed me that even when people are yelling at you and even when people think you're wrong, you can still stand up and be right. And, you know, they may never come to you, but like as long as you're clear and you check in with what your values are and you do the right thing in your moral imagination, you're going to be all right. And so whenever I'm lost, that I, I dig deep and find my moral compass again. And that's something I learned from Wonder Woman. Amazing. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Abby, before we sign mm. on? I would just say fandom is beautiful because it's the way it is now. It's not something we had. It's social. It's connected. Every good and decent and powerful thing that happens in life comes out of connectedness and interconnectedness. And the world, especially the American world, has been telling us for many, many years that we matter most as individuals and we have to take care of ourselves and we have to be independent. And that's a lie. You know, the first thing you ever do is get born out of another human being. Like, there's no moment in our lives when we don't need somebody else. It's a form of torture in almost every culture to put somebody alone in a room for a really long time. So let yourself shake off those stories of individuality and, and look around you, right and left and all around, front and back, and recognize that you're part of an interconnected community and that that's where all your power comes from and lean into that. 
That was beautiful. I'm going to take that first line about fandom and put it on a big billboard. Okay, I like and that. I know, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love that. I'm kidding. Abby, where can we follow you on social media? These days I'm on Threads and Blue Sky, which is all. Um, <laughs> and we Twitter's kind of dying, but I'm still up there hanging on. So I'm Abigail Disney on those, and I'm also Abigail Disney on Instagram, and I think I'm probably kind of leaning in an Instagrammy direction lately, so mostly there. Abigail Disney, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fandom Made Me. What a pleasure, Sabrina. So nice. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, engineered by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Jess Ryan, and of course, to our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.